The History Channel original podcast. Sports history this week. December 19th, 1931. I'm Kalen Jones. It's the week before Christmas, and Manchester United club secretary Walter Crickmer is walking up a long driveway to the luxurious home of a local textiles businessman. Located in Hale Barnes, a small village southwest of Manchester, the mansion is described as beautiful, with a sunken garden out front and a ballroom that could hold a hundred dancing couples. But Crickmer is not here for a holiday party. He's on a mission to save Manchester United. Manchester United is struggling. Last season, the team was relegated to the second division of English football's top league. A few months into this season, United fired their manager, naming Crickmer the club's secretary as a replacement. Results on the pitch haven't improved. Fans are organizing massive boycotts. And the club is drowning in debt. They owe tens of thousands of pounds on the mortgage for their stadium. The players haven't been paid in weeks, and they've reached the end of the line with their creditors. They hadn't paid the gas bill, and they were about to be foreclosed by the bank. So they were in real, real trouble. And so... Walter Crickmer is making the long, lonely walk to meet James W. Gibson. After a relatively brief meeting, Crickmer leaves the village of Hale Barnes with a check for 2,000 pounds in his pocket, enough to buy them new uniforms, back pay to players' salaries, and even buy them Christmas turkeys. Today, a local businessman with no previous affiliation to the club saves Manchester United and puts them on the path to sustain global success. How did Crickmer and the team convince Gibson to invest in a club he had no real interest in? And what sort of decisions did Gibson make with Manchester United that would change the fortunes of one of the world's biggest and most famous clubs forever? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today, Manchester United is one of the biggest and most famous clubs of any sport in the world. One global marketing agency released a study estimating that 1.1 billion people identify as United fans. Red in Russia. This English night in Europe is Manchester United's night. The most dramatic finale to surely win the Champions League. And here they come. 
his latest group of champions. But back in the 1920s, United isn't even the top club in Manchester. That would be their crosstown rivals, Manchester City. Or City, for short. City were more established in those days. They were kind of the establishment of Manchester. Jim White is a journalist and author of many books on football, including Manchester United, the biography, the complete story of the world's greatest club. So that's where the Lord Mayor would go to see and be seen. United were very much the kind of the working class pushed off into the Dockland area. It's tough to succeed when you're playing second fiddle to a more established club right up the road, especially when the on-field product lacks consistency. United were what we call in the English game a yo-yo club, bouncing back and forth. That's a reference to the European football system of promotion and relegation, where the lowest-ranked clubs at the end of each season are sent down to a lower division, which is devastating for any club. Manchester United never quite keep their footing in the top division during this era, as they're constantly relegated down, only to claw their way back up, just to be sent back down again. Like a yo-yo. What were some of the reasons for them, you know, during the 1920s and 1930s that they had so many ups and downs? Like, were there any specific pinpoint reasons for that? I think poor management uh, was part of it. I mean, they had guys who really you know, weren't the top, the best men, the best organizers. Here's Dr. Gary James, organizer of the International Football History Conference and author of 22 books on the history of football. John Henry Davies had been the benefactor of the Manchester United ever since the club had sort of reformed. And when he died in 1927, suddenly United were, were thrown into chaos, really. The lost the man who had invested time and effort and money into the club. Financially, it led to some significant problems. And being relegated to the second division certainly doesn't help. The matches were less attractive. You needed a really attractive product to get people to part with their hard-earned earned income. The matches weren't against Arsenal, weren't against Newcastle but were against Lincoln City and Bradford Park Avenue. They weren't even against Manchester City, so you had none of that kind of local rivalry. It just meant that there was a, a real reduction in the income. And United needs all the money it can possibly get. Not only do they spend three consecutive seasons in the second division in the mid-1920s, but Manchester is hit particularly hard by the post-World War I recession. Manchester was an industrial place. Its wealth was generated in the Victorian era by the cotton trade. But by the 1920s, that industry was in decline. Manchester and Salford had around about 95,000 people in employed at that point. And it got, it got worse after that point. And so that inevitably plays a part in match attendance. You can't afford to go to games. We're talking long before television and all those other ways in which football and sporting clubs earn their money. The only way you made money was by people going through the, the turnstiles. And fans are even harder to come by because team ownership essentially turns their back on the original fan base. 
Davies moved United from East Manchester, which was a very sort of working class district, to West Manchester, to a more affluent area. It was much more of a sort of middle class area compared to where they were from. Even though United was successful, support basically dropped. And just when it seems that Manchester can't even support two football clubs, a third Manchester team comes into the picture in 1928. This team would club Manchester Central, and its first game attracted a, a crowd of over 10,000. Manchester United, for a few of their league games, had had crowds of less than 4,000. Manchester Central Football Club was based in East Manchester. United had moved from East Manchester. This is where a lot of the working-class people were based. Manchester Central even applies to join the Football League, England's top professional soccer league, to compete directly with United and City. Manchester United realized that if Central get accepted into the league, in, in a short period of time, support's going to disappear completely. So, in order to eliminate this potential new rival, Manchester United reaches out to an existing rival for help, Manchester City. United and City meet and end up agreeing between them to complain, to voice their opinion. And on behalf of both clubs, a letter is basically sent to the Football League and it ended up the Football League as a whole said, we're going to reject Manchester Central now after they've been accepted. But rejecting Manchester Central does not magically solve all of United's problems. Far from it. In the first first season of, of the 1930s, 30-31, they actually made their worst start to a season in their history, losing the first 12 matches in a row. John Reeves is a football journalist and author of The Battle for Manchester, the rivalry between Manchester City and Manchester United. That included getting hammered at home 6-0 by Huddersfield Town and 7-4 by Newcastle United. Eventually lost 27 games that season and they conceded over 100 goals and that led to them getting relegated to the second division in 1931. Their supporters grow increasingly frustrated with the team's performance. Only 3,900 fans show up to their stadium, Old Trafford, for the final game that season. The stadium holds nearly 70,000. One prominent local fan decides to take action. The fan rebellion was started by a guy called George Greenhoff. He just had enough of United not doing well. He went round with a megaphone. He was trying to sort of whip everybody up into, into this sort of boycott and, and demonstration. Greenhoff threatens to organize a fan boycott unless the club addresses a five-point plan for improvement. One, change the board. Two, change the manager. Three, sign some good players. Four, get a recruitment system working. And five, engage with the fans. But team owners refuse to meet with Greenhoff or even acknowledge his demands, leading to an even bigger rift between the club and its supporters. Instead of inviting him in and talking to him and trying to say, look, you know, we're having bad days, things might improve, blah, blah, blah. They made him out to be an enemy of the club. And I think, well, he did, he backfired. Without the fan support, Manchester United's financial situation goes from difficult to dire. They were close to bankruptcy. They owed £30,000, which doesn't sound much now when you compare it to Cristiano Ronaldo's salary. 
But I promise you, in those days was a fortune. They owed money to the mortgage. They owed money to buying the ground. That was the main source of their problems. The club continues cutting costs wherever possible. And by December of 1931, club secretary Walter Crickmer is denied in his attempt to buy the traditional Christmas Day turkey for the players and staff. One man in the boardroom knows that drastic steps must be taken to save Manchester United. A guy called Louis Rocker. He never really had an official title. He was just the Mr. Fix-It around the place. He was of Italian extract and he was in love with Manchester United. And with United teetering on the brink, they needed an injection of cash. Rocca goes on a search around Manchester for a local entrepreneur willing to invest in this flailing club. The name he ultimately focuses on? James W. Gibson. I spoke with Alan Embley, Gibson's great-nephew. I'm the only living person who knew him. Wow. Everybody else that knew him was gone. Embley explained how Gibson grew up in Salford, a working-class section of Manchester. He was raised by his elderly grandmother after he lost his mother, father and sister Florence at a very young age. Still, Gibson goes on to build a successful textile business in Manchester, providing military uniforms to the British Army during the First World War. And once the war ends, Gibson begins manufacturing uniforms for municipal workers. Tram drivers, train drivers, bus drivers, and so on, and conductors. And this is how he then went through the recession because he was still making uniforms for the civilian industry. He was an incredible man. Gibson establishes himself as a fixture of the Manchester business scene, with close ties to the local government. He's basically the perfect candidate to invest in Manchester United. Except for one thing, according to author Jim White. He wasn't a football fan. No particular interest in Manchester United as a club. But Rocca and Crickmer don't need Gibson to be a fan of Manchester United. They just need him to see the club as a wise investment. Rocca persuaded him to realize was that Manchester United could become a vehicle for an expression of Mancunianism, of what Manchester stood for. And I think Gibson bought into that, that this could be a way of advertising Manchester and thus, let's be honest, his business to the wider world. If we're a successful club, then people are going to be talking about us. And so on December 19th, 1931, Crickmer makes the trip to visit Gibson at his home in the neighboring village of Hale Barnes. The meeting lasts about an hour and Crickmer leaves with a check for 2,000 pounds. It's a short-term gift to pay a few debts and to make sure that United's players can enjoy a Merry Christmas. But as Crickmer and Gibson both know, £2,000 wasn't enough. Not even close, in fact. Gibson estimates that United will need to raise at least £25,000 to create a sustainable fund that would allow the team to buy and pay competitive players. He even looks to the Manchester community to pitch in. Wants people to come forward to sort of donate money for his appeal. Unfortunately, Within the fourth week, there was only about £100 raised and it wasn't really getting anywhere. So I think Gibson, by this point, realised that the only way to solve the problems would be to actually formally buy the club, take over a club. 
he wasn't a philanthropist. He was a businessman. He wanted Manchester United to succeed as a business, and he went about it in the right way. Gibson's investment balloons from £2,000 to nearly £50,000. His investment isn't minor. It's huge. You know, it is the kind of investment that would bomb a football club. The initial investment becomes known in the history books as the Gibson Guarantee. And now that he's in charge, Gibson has big plans for Manchester United. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Manchester businessman James W. Gibson, not even a football fan, has just taken over Manchester United with a sizable investment. But remember, this is not the glamorous Manchester United adored globally today. In the early 1930s, the team is struggling in the second division. Again, here's Dr. Gary James. The bank refused to lend them any more money, basically, and that that could have been it. And that's when Gibson gets involved. Plus, they've still got a group of very unhappy fans to deal with. But unlike the previous administration that ignored the demands of George Greenhoff and his boycotting fan group, Gibson enters the job with open ears. He didn't want to come across as any kind of dictator. So he, he did talk about how he wanted people to give a voice, and that's one of the reasons why he did actually meet Greenhoff. He wanted to, to keep the supporters on board. If you'll recall, Greenhoff presented a five-point plan to team leadership the year before. One, change the board. Gibson immediately removes all prior members of the Manchester United board and names himself chairman. Two, change the manager. Gibson names Scott Duncan the new manager of Manchester United. Three, sign some good players. Four, get a recruitment system working. Gibson quickly accomplishes both. The influx of new money certainly helps. And five, engage with the fans. Gibson even goes so far as to invite Greenhoff for meetings in the United boardroom. A perfect five for five. All of those five aims had come to fruition that the fans had in 1930 when they were on the point of rebellion. Without ever publicly acknowledging it, he just did all these things. He understood the people, he understood the culture that Manchester United represented. And with the Greenhoff crew appeased, fans start returning to the games at Old Trafford. There'd been a real decline in attendances. But the first game that Gibson was in charge of, the attendances shot right back up. 35,000 turned up, which was 
huge difference compared to, you know, in the dying days of the previous administration. Oh, yeah, they got that new administration bump. <laughs> you know? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's like when squads get the, the new manager and suddenly they play better for a few games. <laughs> that's right, that's right. The, the, the new chairman bounce, I think uh, we could call it. <laughs> Money raised from gate receipts was something like £4,400 for the first half of that 1931-32 season. And then for the second half of that season, it was over £10,000. So suddenly, more than double in gate receipts. United finished the season strong, losing only three of their final 17 games in the 1931-32 season. Gibson also starts making some clever, cost-saving moves for the club. They'd get the train down to Plymouth, have to stay overnight. It was too far to get back in one day for a club that's got no money. And to make matters worse, in those days, the visiting team got no share of the income. But he was a he was a shrewd old boy, Gibson. And what he and Rocker did was they persuaded a local team to put on a friendly, which they got the majority of the gate income for. So they went down to Plymouth, played a friendly as well as the league game against Plymouth, got a bunch of money, which paid for the trip. And pretty soon, by doing things like that, by having that kind of entrepreneurial input, Gibson put them on a profitable footing. The club finally has some breathing room for the first time in decades. You are able to buy players and invest in the team, and not just invest in the team, but invest in facilities too. But of course, there's still a long way to go. A very long way to go. In 1934, Manchester United finishes in 20th place in the second division, narrowly avoiding a dreaded relegation down into the third division. Yet, the fans maintain their support, as United continues to turn a modest profit of just over £4,000 in 1935. And even when United undergoes one more brief promotion-relegation yo-yo in 1936 and 37, it's clear that the fans are now here to stay. United actually made more money from the season when they got promoted from the second division in 1938 than they did the season after. And the general view was that people will go to watch a successful second-tier team than a mid-table, top-flag team. With that kind of support, Manchester United is able to seriously compete. They were making money again. I mean, no, we're not talking huge amounts of money, but they were profitable, which wholly transforms everything because it enables you to buy in better players. And to develop new ones as well. Gibson, Crickmer, they had a vision. They knew what they wanted. They knew Manchester United it was going to be a, a team representing Manchester made up of young Mancunians. Gibson establishes the Manchester United Junior Athletic Club. Or Mujat, as it was known. United recruits some of the most talented young footballers they can find in the area and develops them as future professionals. Gibson was very specific, wanting United to be a beacon of Manchester values, that they were going to be around the world seen as a product of Manchester. Well, the best way to do that was to have Mancunian players in the team, to have local lads come in. That's also a way of connecting with the fans. And Gibson actually said, and I quote, from now on, we will have a Manchester 
United made up of Manchester players. So he was looking to the future. The founding of Mujak is considered one of Gibson's crowning achievements as chairman because it's the sort of thing you can't even attempt to do when you're saddled with questions about being able to pay the gas bill as they were just a few seasons earlier. In English soccer, people talk about five-year plans. People talk about projects. But basically, it's whether you can see beyond the next game. That was very much Gibson's vision in that environment where he could build a club and not just a team. They could have a successful season, but they could have a successful decade. By the late 1930s, Gibson and Manchester United seem to have put it all together when everything comes to a sudden halt. Already German troops, guns and planes have crossed the Polish border to kill and to destroy. So Britain prepares to fight. And never in our history have we been so united in the knowledge that our cause is just. Football is suspended in England from 1940 to 1946, as England comes under siege during World War II. Manchester United's home stadium, Old Trafford, is destroyed. It was uh, absolutely hammered by uh, German bombing because it was so close to strategically important parts of, of, of the uh, English infrastructure. It was completely flattened by the bombs. Here's Gibson's great nephew, Alan Embling, recalling his uncle's reaction. We walking, and when he learned about this, uh, he, there was the nearest my cousin ever saw it dead. He sought his father to cry. After the war, it's Gibson who lobbies Parliament, securing funds to have Old Trafford rebuilt. He rebuilt that club, not once, but twice. He, he built the club in the 30s. He rebuilt it after the war, not once, but twice, in difficult times. And Gibson knows that a major part of that rebuild is to find the perfect manager to give United a steady hand at the helm for many years to come. Matt Busby. Again, here's author John Reeves. He came back from the war and had opportunities to, to join a number of clubs, but he took, took the chance to be player manager at Manchester United. And obviously that was a, was a great moment in United's history. As a player, Busby was a star for two of United's biggest rivals, Liverpool and Manchester City. But as a manager for United, he fits perfectly into what Gibson is trying to accomplish. When he appointed Matt Busby, he was a very young manager at the time. He had a vision to promote academy players, young players, and they were obviously future, the future team. Gibson and Busby aren't just aligned on player development, but on the importance of keeping the fans happy and engaged too. Cup tie excitement captures Britain's sportsmen as 70,000 fans jam Sheffield's Hillsborough ground to see the Wembley favourites Manchester United meet white-shirted Derby County. For the soccer world, this is the classic of the season. It was so important to Matt Busby that the fans were entertained. Football was, and still is, a, a working-class sport, but back then it, it really was. And, you know, he'd famously say, as part of his team talks, People out there watching you work all week in the factory. This is their one moment of joy this weekend. Go out there and entertain them. Give them something to smile about and to remember. And the biggest smiles come in 1948, when Manchester United beats Blackpool to lift the FA Cup. Charlie Mitten, number 11, starts off United's winning attack. And from Rowley's pass, Stan Pearson scores the goal that gives Manchester the cup. It's United's first trophy in over a decade. It was that first breakthrough, really. It was the validation of their approach. And back then, the FA Cup was probably the trophy to win, more so than the league title. It was that 
that real showpiece. The King hands the silver trophy to skipper Johnny Carey. Their 4-2 victory, snatched in the last few minutes, gives Manchester United the reward they richly deserve. Busby goes on to have one of the most successful managing tenures in the history of the sport, staying with United until 1969 and winning five First Division titles, two FA Cups, and one European Cup. It was the great Busby Babes. The Busby Babes, the nickname given to the United squads of the 1940s and 50s, filled mostly with young players who came directly through Gibson's Junior Athletic Club. Young and confident, everybody loved the Busby Babes. League champions twice, the first team into Europe, they could win the lot. Charlie Mitten, Johnny Aston, Stan Pearson, all these guys were brought in and, and they were, it started that whole process that we now know of, of Manchester United and their obsession with youth players. Their success even inspires a 1957 song called the Manchester United Calypso. Manchester United, a bunch of bouncing they deserve to be knighted. But as for Gibson himself, declining health leads to his death in September 1951. Gibson's wife, Lillian, inherits his ownership stake of the club until her passing in 1971. Their son, Alan, serves as United's vice chairman into the 1970s. Sadly, he died before all of that success was realized by the club. And he survived longer than that and gone on to see how the team progressed and the real advent of the Busby Babes and the club being pioneers in Europe. I think he would have an even greater reputation with, with the United fans. But according to some, the true Gibson guarantee isn't just the money Gibson put into the club in 1931. To historians, the guarantee represents something bigger and more meaningful. It's that guarantee of time and understanding and faith in a manager and his methods, but also a passion for a club that is long-term. Or in simpler terms. James W. Gibson was very much, I suppose, the savior of the club. The man that saved United. There wouldn't be a Manchester United without Gibson. European success, major power, the Ferguson years, all of that, you know, none of that would have happened without Gibson. Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Other notable sports stories that happened this week? 1973. The University of Tennessee defeats Temple University 11-6 in basketball. It's still the lowest-scoring college basketball game in history. And 2007, the Mitchell Report comes out after a 20-month investigation reveals that dozens of Major League Baseball's biggest names have been using steroids and other performance-enhancing substances. If you'd like to get in touch, please shoot us an email at sportspod at history.com or leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to our guest, Jim White, author of Manchester United, The Biography. Gary James, author of Manchester, A Football History. John Reeves, author of The Battle for Manchester. And Alan Embley, great nephew of James W. Gibson. This episode was produced by David Ingber. It was story edited by me, Kaylin Jones, and sound designed by The Poglomerate. Sports History This Week is also produced by Cooper McKim. Our senior producer is Ben Dixting. 
Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks and Hazel May. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.